or good afternoon. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. And I'm going to read from verse 13. As Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Oh, how privileged you are, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you, you are Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave strict instructions to the disciples that they tell no one that he is the Christ. From that point on, Jesus showed his disciples that he must travel to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise on the third day. Upon hearing this, Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Goodness gracious, Lord, this will not happen to you. Turning to him, Jesus said to Peter, Get away from me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not thinking God's thoughts but human thoughts. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what benefit will it be to a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and his angels, and then he will repay each according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that he is doing amongst us and we pray that this evening as we seek to understand this, your word, that you might quieten our hearts and enable us not only to understand it but to believe it and believing it to put it into practice. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those of you who are returning to college uh, will remember that in College Chapel, usually on Fridays, I've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. At the very end of last year, we arrived at this passage. But a series of extraordinary events in the world and in the Anglican denomination caused me to concentrate on just one verse, verse 18. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon or at this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's a promise that uh, we need to hear when there's so much turmoil in the world and when the ground seems to be shifting under our feet. I will build my church. Jesus is doing that. He is building his church. And there is nothing, 
nothing you can possibly imagine and nothing beyond your imagination that will stand in the way of that. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, is active at this very moment building his church. But I did say that uh, we would return to this passage in the new year as we pick up where we left off in Matthew's Gospel. And it's an entirely appropriate passage with which to begin our year of study together because it helps us to set in place some very important perspectives for life as a follower of Jesus. I take it that although no doubt there were many reasons why you made your decision to come to college to study or to return to college to study or agree to teach in college, at the heart of it, was a conviction that this is the next step in your walk of discipleship. We are disciples, students, followers of Jesus Christ. Wherever he wants to take us, we will go. The people he gives us to care for, we will love and serve. The gospel he's entrusted to us, we will guard and proclaim. But what does that look like from day to day? What does it look like to follow God's Messiah, the Christ? And friends, we need to face that question with a willingness to have our ideas about the answer turned upside down. Because even right at the start, people got it wrong. It was possible, even during Jesus' earthly ministry, even among his closest followers, to get it wrong. So, before in a moment we join in the symbolic meal that reminds us that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us, let's focus for a moment on this life-giving word of God. And I want to do that in answer to two questions. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God? And what does it mean for us to follow this kind of Christ? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and what does it mean for us to follow this kind of Christ? Now, before we do that, because we're stepping into the middle of an unfolding story, it'll be useful to remember what's been happening in the chapters leading up to this. In those chapters, tension had been mounting between Jesus and the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus was doing extraordinary things, and making clear that something way out of the normal was taking place before their eyes. There were the two banquets, you might call them, the two anticipations of the great messianic feast to come. First, the feeding of 5,000 Jewish men and their families, and then the feeding of 4,000 Gentile men and their families. See, the Messiah is not just for the Jews. He's not just Israel's anointed one. He's God's anointed one, the only mediator between God and human beings. Not that those who witnessed these events understood that yet. And there'd been miraculous healings demonstrating the new creative thing that God was doing in and through this man. But the religious leaders were getting touchy, and more than touchy. They challenged Jesus and demanded a sign. And Jesus told them the only sign that they would be given would be the sign of God's prophet swallowed up in judgment, the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
the sign that God was to fulfill his plan in the most unexpected way, that the appointed deliverer would look defeated but would actually succeed in what God sent him to do. Then in the wake of their hostility, Jesus warned his own disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, watch out for the corrosive teaching of the religious authorities. You see, tension is mounting. A confrontation is looming. This just can't go on forever. And it is at this point that Jesus travelled into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Well, the question on everyone's lips, it seemed, was, who is Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples about the answers people were coming up with, what they'd overheard. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, none of the answers relayed by the disciples are answers that we're likely to hear today. If we were to wander down King Street and ask, who do you think Jesus is? If you'd get any repeatable answer at all, uh, it would not be John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. We live in a very different time. But in the first century, with the recent experience of the ministry of John the Baptist and with the background of the prophetic promises read week after week in the synagogues, these seem very reasonable suggestions. I mean, King Herod was one of those who thought that Jesus was John the Baptist brought back to life. The prophet Malachi had spoken of the return of Elijah right at the end of time. And perhaps the great prophet Jeremiah had returned. Basically, they all agree that he's a prophet. He has some important things to say, perhaps a very important message from God. He is the latest in a long line of prophets. Well, Jesus, you won't be surprised, was not satisfied with what others were saying. And so he asked, who do you say I am? The question, you see, needed to be pressed home. They had to answer for themselves. And sooner or later, each one of us will be required to give our own answer to that same question. Who do you say that I am? It was Peter, it was almost always Peter, who answered for them. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was a remarkable thing to say when you think about it, especially for a Jewish man. Here, he's saying, is God's Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That was remarkable enough. He's the one for whom the Jews had been waiting all this time, all through their history. But add the Son of the Living God, and you take this confession to a whole new level. Now, I don't think for a moment that Peter understood all the ramifications of what he was saying at that point. That would take some time and the ministry of the Spirit after Jesus' resurrection. But one thing was perfectly clear to him right then. There is no way Jesus is just the latest in a long line of prophets. He's something different entirely. Well, it soon became painfully obvious that Peter did not yet understand all that Jesus meant. If we skip over the excitement that God had revealed this to Peter, that Peter is, Simon is renamed Peter, the wonderful promise that Jesus is building his church on the rock of this confession, on the foundation of who he is and what he came to do, if we skip over the promise of the ongoing power of the gospel to bring about real change on earth and in heaven, we end up 
with what seemed to Peter at that moment to be an almost absurd thing for Jesus to say. Have a look with me. Verse 21. From that point on, Jesus showed his disciples that he must travel to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and rise on the third day. The great deliverer for whom they had been waiting so long, the son of the living God, no less. And he was talking about suffering and dying and rising again. How could that be? It became very clear very quickly that Peter had no idea how that could be. Nothing overcomes the Christ, the son of the living God. Hadn't Jesus himself just said that? Even the gates of Hades will not overcome the church Jesus is building. Nothing triumphs over him. He conquers all. He brings the abundant life. With him there is always success. Nothing will get in his way. With Jesus, everything is better. Life is better. Business is better. Relationships are better. You are better. Because he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But now Jesus was talking about suffering many things, about being killed and rising on the third day. Peter's confusion has been echoed in just about every generation since. There have always been people who taught and believed that Jesus is the way to success, however you choose to measure success, whether it be by honour, by what appears to be financial security, by the strength and beauty of our relationships. There's a therapeutic brand of Christianity operating today. Jesus is the answer to all our problems. And it's very popular and it's very close. He came to give you what you want most, what you know you need to be fulfilled wherever you are. You'll never suffer again. It's going to be one triumph after another from now on. God wants you rich. God wants you healthy. God wants your church to be big and bustling, your ministry to be heroic and inspiring. But it was wrong when Peter thought like that and it was wrong when we are fooled to think like that. You can't suffer. You can't be killed. God won't let that happen, Lord, Peter tells Jesus. This will not happen to you. He meant well, didn't he? It was a word of encouragement, wasn't it? A spur on to the next great thing? Well, no, not really. Peter meant it as a rebuke, a correction, an insistence that Jesus stopped talking like that. God's mercy always triumphs, Jesus. You should know that. This will never happen to you. You've got it wrong. This is not what it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's not what I meant when I said that about you. And at that moment, Jesus gives perhaps the most stinging rebuke to Peter that he ever received in his life. Get away from me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. It's not what you want to hear from Jesus' lips, is it? To be identified as Satan, to be told you're a hindrance, a stumbling block to Jesus and his purposes, that you're not thinking God's thoughts but human thoughts. I never want to hear those words of Jesus addressed to me. Do you? But these are strong words from Jesus. 
but they are necessary words and we need to hear them. Because, you see, Jesus is not just the Christ. He's not just the Christ. He's this kind of Christ. He's this kind of Messiah. Not the mass adulation, mixing with the world's celebrities, having an influence in the corridors of power type of Messiah. Not the big lights, big name, big crowds and enjoying the little, bit, little luxuries of life on the side kind of Messiah. He is the Christ who travelled to Jerusalem not to get a massage, but to be betrayed, arrested, mistreated, condemned and killed. He rose victorious on the third day, but that was after the betrayal, the arrest, the abuse, the corrupt miscarriage of justice and the barbaric execution. These were not tragic and unforeseen circumstances which had somehow derailed God's intended plan. They are in every way part of the plan. It is what the Father, the Son and the Spirit intended from the beginning. This is the kind of Christ he is. The Apostle Paul would later say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and so that you don't get it wrong, and him crucified. We follow and serve the risen Messiah, but he is the crucified and risen Messiah. And friends, get Jesus wrong, and you'll get discipleship wrong. You'll get Christian ministry wrong. It really is crucial to understand who it is we're following. We need to know the kind of Christ he is. And when Peter gets it wrong, he is rebuked in the strongest of terms. And that's when we turn to our second question. What does it mean for us to follow this kind of Christ? Hear those words of Jesus again from verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what benefit will it be to a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will repay each according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And once again, they're stark and confronting words, aren't they? And they're addressed, I hope you notice, not just to the original 12 disciples. Jesus said, if anyone, whoever, denying yourself, not indulging yourself, not preoccupied with your own rights or entitlements, not concerned for how you'll be looked after or how your needs will be met. And friends, you can fall into that trap even in the midst of Christian ministry, can't you? Isn't that what some of the scandals involving high-profile Christian leaders have really been all about? Taking up your cross... The only reason you'd do that in the ancient world was if you yourself were on your way to the gallows. Your mind concentrated on the fact that death is real and imminent. It was, always was, 
as one man put it, a prelude to crucifixion. Living as life doesn't matter anymore, that it could be given up in a moment, but there's something more precious and more lasting lying ahead. And following me, the direction of my life at every point, with every turn, determined by someone other than me. I'm not trailblazing, I'm following. I don't get to decide where I'm going, when, where, how, because I am following him. Now, why would anyone do that? Deny themselves, take up their cross, follow him. Why would anyone be willing to endure that hardship, to to persevere through that real suffering? Friends, the answer lies in who Jesus is. Because he is this kind of Messiah, because he denied himself, because he took up his cross, because he walked the path his father determined for him, because he's like that, Christian discipleship has this shape. If you are following a Messiah who suffered, not just light momentary suffering, but acute suffering and undeserved suffering, if you're following him, how could you ever be convinced that you have a right to a life without suffering? A ministry without disappointment? Immunity from opposition? If the Christian life is all about being conformed to the image of Jesus, and that's what Romans 8, 29 teaches me, if my life is all about being conformed to the image of Jesus, then I need to take very seriously indeed what this Jesus is like. He suffered unjustly, unfairly, at the hands of people who ought to have been on his side. And it was only on the other side of that suffering that he triumphed. It's a unique and uh, powerful perspective to set in place at the beginning of an academic year when you think about it. The glorious Messiah, the Son of the living God, is one who suffers. And the follower of Jesus is one who travels down that same road, enduring suffering and heading to glory. Followers of Jesus who have not really grasped this have floundered in the face of the opportunities and benefits that seem to open up before them. They've been ensnared and enticed and brought low and they've hurt others along the way. I don't need to mention names. Uh, You will have heard of them. They're in the newspapers and they'll continue to be in the newspapers until the Lord Jesus returns. Somewhere they lost their way And they began to indulge themselves rather than deny themselves. They carried the trappings of success and influence and power rather than carrying their cross. And they followed the desires of their own hearts rather than following him. I need to set firmly in my mind at the beginning of this year just who it is I'm following. What kind of Christ... And what following him will look like if I'm really following this kind of Christ, denying myself, taking up my cross, following him. There will be great joy in that. 
It won't be all darkness and trauma and suffering. This Jesus has already been through it all and entered into his glory. He is building his church. And yes, there is no power in heaven or on earth that can prevent that from happening. And he is coming back as ruler and judge to set all things right. But Christian discipleship means following the path he trod and having the same self-forgetfulness that characterised him. That kind of Christ. That kind of discipleship. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you please remind us again and again of who it is we follow. Help us to live as those who rejoice in all that Jesus has done and are willing to put aside everything so that we might genuinely follow him. Would you enable us by your spirit not only to hear these words, but to live them. And we ask it for Jesus' sake.